that butt. You know that butt God. There, there's some Bible verses that we know that are so encouraging that have that but God phrase, right? Like uh, Ephesians. I've got it in here. Maybe. Helps if I turn it on. There we go. Ephesians 2, 3 through 4. You made me know this. It's in the middle of a sentence. Among all whom we all live once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the math and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Oh my goodness, like the rest of mankind. But God, <laughs> that's one of those so encouraging but gods, right? And then, and then Genesis 50, right? Joseph and his brothers, his brothers did all those evil things to him. Their dad dies. They're freaking out. They think, what is Joseph going to do to us? And Joseph says, but Joseph said to them, but do not fear for I am I in the place of God is for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There are so many encouraging but gods. Today is not one of those in this passage we're in. Um, <laughs> it isn't one of those. It starts with the word but, but it is a very sobering but. Um, and this passage is a hard one to preach. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. And um, <laughs> it is sobering because it doesn't show us a picture of a fuzzy God to us. It doesn't show us a warm, cozy, loving God. It shows us a God who is a God of wrath. And he, there are some things in this passage that will trouble some of you. They definitely trouble our world, and they do not like these kind of passages. So let's ask God to help us understand this passage, and then we'll, we'll get into it. God, we, we long for that day when you do come back. And in the meantime, we are going to sing it in the trenches, thankful that you have broken the chains from us, knowing that the wrath of God against our sin was against us. And yet you have sent Jesus to die for us to take that wrath. And as we look at this difficult passage today, it's a passage that led some theologians long ago to say that there's two gods, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, a wrathful God and a loving God. We know that's not true. This passage shows us that you are also a God of wrath. Yes, you are a God of love and mercy and grace, but you are also a God of wrath. And so we ask for your help this morning as we try to understand this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, does anybody remember what we learned about in Joshua 6? We're in Joshua 7. What happened? What was the story in Joshua 6? Jericho. What happened in Jericho? Children. The walls came down. All right, Donnie, thank you. The walls came down. Right? It was the first city. The rest of Joshua is about Israel taking over these cities, coming into the promised land. It's awesome. This was the first city. I want to remind you of the instructions from Joshua 6, 17, 18. When he was, they were getting ready to go in, he gave them these instructions. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. 
But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. God is saying to the children of Israel, when you go into Jericho, destroy it utterly, thoroughly. Do not take anything from it. But if you do take anything from it, you need to know that you will now be devoted to destruction yourself. Very, very sobering warning. So we saw the people went in and they burned the city and everything in it, it said. But not all the people obeyed. So verse 1 of chapter 7 says this. And see, it starts off with the but. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. That is a dark and foreboding passage way to start this sermon off, isn't it? But Bat and I, we just go through the book. He's going through Luke. And when it comes up to awkward, hard passages, he's going to preach through it. And as we're one of them for us from Joshua. One thing already that's very troubling, you may have picked up on this. It says that plural people of Israel, God's anger is burning against the people. Yet it shows that one person, singular, was the one who committed the sin. Does anybody that bother you? One dude sinned, and yet God says Israel as a whole, he's angry with them. We, we call that corporate solidarity. How many of you ever been like on an athletic team and one person screwed it up and yet the coach took out his wrath on everybody? Right? Okay. How many were in the military? All right. You guys know what I'm talking about. Right? We're all being smoked by the drill sergeant if one guy messes it up. That's corporate solidarity. That's what we have here. God's wrath is against his people because one person sinned in a really bad way. His sin touched there in the entire nation. And this whole passage is about this one thing. Okay, if I could just summarize all of chapter 7, this is what it's about. Sin is rebellion against God. It distances us from him and it justly deserves his wrath. That's that's what the whole message of Joshua 7 is about. Like, well, that doesn't sound like a happy message. We just sing some great songs, Paul. You're a real downer. But this is what the text says. This is what it's about. But what we're going to do today is we're going to see two, th- two, two aspects. We're going to see God's wrath, and we're going to see like the consequences of sin interwoven all through that. So the way I'm going to structure this is we're going to look at the results of God's wrath, the reason for God's wrath, and the removal of God's wrath. So let's first start with the results of God's wrath. You know, we know this, we feel this, that sin has messed up everything, hasn't it? 
Um, it has meth- messed up everything, and nothing in this world is as it should be. And we're going to see that one of the things that sin messes it up, messes up, is that it prevents God's presence. Let's read verses two through five together. Okay, um, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, "Go up and spy out the land." And men went up and spied out Ai. That spying thing seems like it would be a theme in this book, doesn't it? And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let just about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. Now keep in mind, like Israel is almost at least a million people. It's 600,000 men and then women and children added onto it. And they're saying, ah, just a couple couple thousand guys will be able to take care of this. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. The people of Israel go up to Ai and they flee because the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as that town, Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, meaning Israel, their hearts melted and became as water. That's the exact same phrase that's used to describe the people of Jericho and a couple of other people groups in Joshua prior to Jericho. They were all, their hearts were melting, and now we see Israel's hearts are melting. I mean, they had just won Jericho. Everybody is high on, whoa, we got this, right? And they go in and lose 36 soldiers. They turn tail and run. What's the key difference between this battle and the battle of Jericho? There's something missing. It's God's presence. They don't even ask for help. And you see nothing about God being present in this battle. He withdrew his presence. And that's what I'm saying. Sin can cause, it can prevent God's presence. God's wrath against sin can sometimes be expressed in him withdrawing blessing from his people. Now, I have a friend, a few friends that go to a famous church. And families started coming to our church from that church, started leaving. And he started telling me about all kinds of awful things that were going on in the leadership of that church. And things were falling apart in this famous church. And I, I remember thinking about this exact passage. God will withdraw his blessing when there is known sin not being dealt with. So when there's unrepentant sin, just know, don't expect God's blessing. Don't expect things go well. Now, that doesn't mean that when things go bad, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you know that there's sin in your heart that you're wanting to hold on to, that you're not willing to turn from and say, God, that is wrong. I need to turn against that. I need to confess that to you. If you were going to hold on to that, just know it's not going to go well. 
You cannot hold on to your sin and expect God to bless you. Galatians 6, 7 tells us, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So, Israel, 36 people died. They ran. They retreated. And you can imagine Joshua is, like, devastated. Um, It crushes him, understandably so. And let's read verses 6 through 9 and see what Joshua does when he finds out. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to just give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to just dwell on the other side of the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? He's, he's really upset. I mean, and he's like, why did we even bother coming in to this town, to this area? Why, why God? We would have been better off. Now, I love these verses. You know why? Because it reminds me that while Joshua was an awesome leader, He's very weak, like me. Not that I'm an awesome leader, I'm weak. And, and I have times, like Joshua does right here, that he doubts God's promises. I mean, come on, Joshua. You have seen walls of Jericho fall down flat. You've seen the Jordan River opened up. You've seen the Red Sea opened up. You've seen God provide over and over. And you react like this? Over 36 people dying? And I do that. I know you do that because we're human, aren't we? We lose sight of what God's done and only see the suffering that we're in right now. And (laughs) so what does sin cause us to do? It causes us to doubt God's promises. Right? That's That's what Josh was doing here. It causes us to doubt God's promises and you know (laughs) it's just it's great because Joshua reacted just like us and here's what Joshua did though he did what the psalmist do that you and I should do when we have an awful time and a bad thing happen to us we cry out we complain to God now we don't accuse him of wrongdoing but cry out to him and your lament and say God, what is going on? And then what's likely going to happen is that God's going to snap you to attention, which is what he does to Joshua right here. So we saw that first part is the results of God's wrath, right? Achan has sinned. He's hidden stuff. They try to go to a battle. They get their you-know-what's whooped. And then they run back home crying. Joshua complains. We see the results of God's wrath. But let's see the reason for God's wrath, starting at verse 10. And here we're going to see that sin is against God himself. So what does Josh, God say to Joshua after Joshua complained to God? And you can almost hear him yelling at Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> you can just feel it, can't you? 
Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. You can imagine Joshua going like, well, wait, what? I, I don't even know about this, God. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God's saying what he told them in chapter 6 that we looked at, those review verses. If you don't destroy it, I will be against you. And he says, I will not be with you anymore. Sin prevents God's presence? He says it right there. But he keeps going. He even says, get up again. Get up, verse 13. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. Now, that devoted thing, you're like, that word we use like, um, I'm devoted to him. He's, these are my special things. Don't think that way. These are like dedicated. That means this belongs to God. And sometimes God says, these things I want destroyed. And that's what, what it keeps using that phrase for. He says, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. Now, you're like, what, what does that all mean? What God is doing is through a process of elimination, revealing who sinned. Israel's broken up into 12 tribes. Under each tribe, you have clans. Under each clan, you have households. And then each household is led by a man and their family. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. You can see this is very serious. God is not, he's not to be trifled with, is he? And you can you just see it really clear. I really hardly ever need to preach, don't even hardly need to preach this passage. You just read and you're like, oh man, God, it's scary sometimes. But what happened in those verses, you may not notice, is he laid out five charges against Israel. He says, they transgressed my covenant. And that's kind of like an umbrella for everything else that follows. He says, they took things that were things devoted to destruction. They stole, they deceived, and they put the things devoted to destruction, those things that were devoted to destruction, among their things. So let me just explain those five charges real quick. That first one just really emphasizes that Israel, by allowing that sin and not dealing with it, Israel tolerated that sin and broke the covenant that they had with God. And you've got to imagine that this wasn't a secret. It's very possible that, you know, Achan had been having a beer with his buddies and said, man, wait till you see what I got. 
because just a little bit of loose lips and all of a sudden you're going to start sharing your secrets, right? It doesn't say that. I think they probably knew. Second charge, though, was that they took things devoted to destruction. And you may like, how does that violate the covenant? Well, because the covenant said, you are not to touch the unclean thing. And God declared all of Jericho itself and everything in it, people, stuff, it all unclean because they had rebelled against God. If you were in Sunday school, Pastor Matt read Romans 1, which is a commentary on what all people are like. All people know that there's a God and that they've rebelled against him. Jericho was just like that. So they took things that God said, as my holy people, you are not to touch the unclean thing. These things are devoted to destruction. The third accusation the accusation he gives them is that they stole. And you're like, well, wait, they stole. They were supposed to steal it, destroy it all. He's saying you stole from me. You see, Jericho was to be treated like a tithe. This is the first city of a bunch of cities they're going to go into. And these future cities, God's going to give them clear instruction to say, you can take the stuff this time. Just kill the men. Or sometimes he'll, he'll make it very specific. But this first one, Jericho was to be like what you call the first fruits. A tithe given to God. And they stole from God. Achan stole from God by taking that was, which was supposed to be offered as a sacrifice to God. He kept back some of that. If you know anything about the Bible, God says, you don't steal from my tithe. You don't take from me. And so that's the third charge. The, the, the next charge is um, that they deceived. Achan wasn't just content to take some of the things. He compounded his sin by deception, by covering it up and burying it under his tent in the dirt. So who was he deceiving? He wasn't just deceiving his fellow Israelites. He was also trying to deceive God, trying to hide. And that last one, it's just like further adds to the deception is that he put the goods among his own stuff. He mixed it in there. And God says no. So this, God says, is why they lost that battle of Ai. Verse 10, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. And now, what has happened to Israel is just what God promised would happen. He says, they have become devoted for destruction. And that's exactly what God said would happen. Now, I, I just, in your head, I think some of us would not honestly say this out loud. But in your head, I think we honestly would feel it. Does it bother you that the God of the universe demands destruction of sinners? I mean, it violates certain sensibilities that our modern day has. And you don't have to be in a modern day. You're like, he wanted them to destroy children, babies, puppies. Right? That should be like, well, let me remind you, who made all of that? God. God is their creator. And they are the created. God is the king. And they are under the king. And they, like every single one of us, have rebelled against God. 
we are just like those people in Jericho that we ourselves have lied. We've kept things that don't belong to us. We've been selfish. We are just as guilty. And God's holy and infinite and cannot tolerate sin. I think we, we treat sin as like this little petty thing. But I think, that's, I think we should think for a second about what is sin, that God would be this serious about it. And I want to give you a long quote um, from R.C. Sproul. He has a classic book that I highly recommend um, called The Holiness of God. But he helps us understand what sin is. So let me read this to you. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? And this next word he uses is so R.C. Sproul. Of the most minute peccadillo. I don't know what the peccadillo is, but it must be a small, tiny thing. We think of that as not, oh, it's just that small, tiny thing. What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We're saying no to the righteousness of God. We're saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. That's our attitude when we sin. You're like, now, come on, in your heart, you know, if he's my king and I do anything that he says is not what he wants to do, I'm saying, God, I think my law of how things ought to be is better. That's what it is. And the one who holds every single atom in place right now, who knows the name of the trillions and zillions of stars and holds them all in place. And we're saying that to him. That's what sin is. That's why God did this thing. He knows these people were in utter rebellion. They were sacrificing and eating their children, people. This is not just... Oh, just it's not like going down to Westville and burning it down. Although Westville, Danville, everybody in Vermilion County deserves destruction for rebellion against this king. Our sin is against him and it's weightier than we think and treat it. And God will deal with it. And that's what this passage is about. He's telling Joshua when he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell the people to get ready. Because tomorrow I'm going to show you who did the sin. He's telling Joshua, you have to deal with it. You have to destroy it and everything he has in order to be a pure and holy people for me. So what does sin do? It will also, we know that it will be exposed by God. Exposed by God. Let's read here. So Joshua rose early in the morning. This is the next day brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zerahite was taken. You're like, how does this work? They would have drawn lots. They would have had something like drawing straws. They would have picked at random, and we know nothing happens at random. It would have been a random pick. Oh, tribe of Judah, step forward. Everybody else, you can go home or step aside. 
And then, okay, of the clans of Judah, they did another random pick, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken, meaning brought forth. And then they brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he was brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. We know from Hebrews 4.13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God, by his providential hand, guided the lot to be chosen in order to reveal Achan and the guilty party. God sees and he knows and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Don't think that you can escape his wrath. If you do not repent, you cannot begin to imagine what lies ahead of you. So Joshua tells Achan to lay bare the truth. So Joshua says, verse 19, My son, give glory to God, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, which is Babylon, by the way, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 500 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So to covet, we're learning the Ten Commandments, to covet something is to strongly desire it. And when I, what I can confess there is that age-old pattern that sin always takes. Does it sound familiar? I saw it, I coveted it, I took it. Let me remind you of a passage that should sound familiar to you. Genesis 3, 6. Same verbs. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. And we know how everything went from there, right? (laughs) That's the progression that sin takes in our lives. Saw, desired, took. How do you stop that pattern in your own life? Cut it off at the beginning. Don't listen to the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They tell you that God is withholding something from you. He's withholding something good from you. That silver, you want it. That thing you want so bad. They tell you that there's another beauty, another good, another happiness that you're missing out on. What do you need to do? You need to do like Job and make a covenant with your eyes to not look on that which was, does not belong to you. Don't stare longingly at what God does not want in your life. Instead, as Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the God of all good, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that look like? It means to fight, to please God, fear God, delight in loving God, look 
long at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Gaze at his beauty day after day by being in his word, being with his people. When you gaze at his beauty day after day, that's going to produce in you the right desires and actions that will please God. And we've seen this morning the results of God's wrath. It was destruction, right? And we've seen the reason for why God was so wrathful. And now we move into what I'd say is the darkest and the brightest part of this passage. The removal of God's wrath. The removal of God's wrath. We've seen a lot of things that sin does. It removes God's presence. It causes us to doubt his promise and other things. But we also see that sin must be punished. That's what this passage is teaching us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how can God's wrath be placated? How can it be removed? God's angry at sin. He must be because he's holy. The question that should be pumping in your brain How can that be changed? Because I don't want God angry at me and my sin. Right? Because you're feeling the conviction of sin, I pray, by this Holy Spirit right now that none of us in this room are perfect. And we've all sinned. It seems like we should all be stoned right now. How can God's wrath be removed? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not by doing more good things. Because you'll never be able to do enough good things. So look at verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid the stuff down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak, the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. So, Achan confessed to his guilt, and we see what happened there. Some of your Bibles, when you first read Achan's name, think in verse 1, may have a little footnote about what Achan's name means. It means trouble. It's, it's in the valley of Achor. The word Achor right there means trouble. In the valley of trouble, Achan, troubler, was troubled. And that's why in the ESV it says, the Lord brings trouble upon you today. It's like Josh was asking, why have you troubled us, you troubler? Now Yahweh will bring upon you the trouble you brought upon us. And then we see it's that sin, Achan's sin, I'm going to use a word you may not have heard before, is expiated. Expiation means to take away guilt. It's done by either offering a sacrifice or through the payment of a penalty. Expiation is the action that's done to remove guilt. You and I all have guilt. That guilt must be removed, and the only way it can be removed is by having it expiated. 
meaning a right and sufficient sacrifice must be paid for your guilt. And in this case, Achan and all of his family and possessions were stoned to death. And God, God had promised that if he was not fully obeyed, that Israel would come under that ban themselves. And here we see that God kept that promise. It's scary, I know. It's a very true reminder, though, to us of God's holiness and his justice and his wrath against sin. I hope you see that, I mean, we or I am so tempted often to make no big deal the fact that I just yelled at my kids. I minimize my sin. But God's saying, your sin is very serious. And that's what this is showing us. And all through this passage, the emphasis is often on the whole nation. And like, if they don't deal with the sin of Achan, the whole nation is going to be guilty. And they're going to be punished as well. That corporate solidarity is not just something you see those 40 times in the Old Testament. You'll see corporate solidarity in the New Testament as well. Read this one, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, that Genesis 3 that we were reading, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, Adam is like Achan. He represents us. He represented us in the garden. We are in union with Adam. When Adam sinned, this verse says, you and I, every single one of us sinned at that same time, even though we didn't even exist at that point. We were all united to him as our federal representative. And so many people have a real problem with that. They're like, well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have screwed up. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And they all have a problem with being united to Adam. But I don't hear anyone ever have a problem with being united to Christ. See, in order to receive the gift of salvation, that union with Christ... You have to first be willing to confess the reality that you are in union with Adam. That you are Adam, that you are Cain, that you're Rahab, that you're Achan, that you're David when he committed adultery. You are with them. And you and I have sinned all along the way. Now, here's the good news. You're like, oh, man, this is getting lower and lower and lower. It's, it's hard. It's hard. But there is no good news unless you hear all that bad news. It doesn't make any sense unless you know what bad situation we are in. The good news is this, that God's wrath can be removed. God's wrath can be removed. That's what's happening in expiation. But there's something else going on here. Read verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. And this is the bright part of this terrible story, folks. God's wrath can be removed. And we see his response to the expiation. The expiation is the fact that they carried out the punishment that removed the guilt. And what happens is is God turns from his burning anger. 
Achan confessed his sin, and the consequence of that sin was expiation. Now, you're like, how is that the bright part of the story? Because the other side of the coin of placating God's wrath is another fancy word called propitiation. Okay? Propitiation means to turn away wrath. This may not seem very bright to you yet, but listen, bear with me here. Yes, God, and I'm going to read this so I don't mess this up. God is no longer angry, but the only way for him to no longer be angry is through having my sins punished, expiated. Remember, because sin is treason against the king of the universe, then in our natural state, you and I are enemies against the king because we have sinned. And when there's treason against the king, there's a right sense of wrath against the enemies, right? You can imagine a king should be angry when the people have treason, committed treason against him. Expiation removes our guilt and propitiation satisfies God's wrath. It means that for those whose sins have been expiated and propitiated, God's no longer angry with them. Like, well, how do I get that? Because I'd like God not to be angry at me because I just sinned this morning just getting here. Right? I need that because I'm guilty. I need my sins removed and I need God's wrath turned away from me. And that's why this is the brightest part of the story. Because the Old Testament makes us long for Jesus. Right? 1 John 4.10. And it even uses the word I defined for you this morning. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Like I've seen that word before. I didn't know what that meant. It's talking about what you just read in Joshua 7. That means on the cross of Christ, Jesus wasn't just hanging there as a perfect man who had done nothing and it was a wrong crime. Jesus was taking all of the guilt you have on himself. He was being expiated himself. And at the same time, he says, God, my father, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to forsake someone? Right? To turn away. That means when Christ was on the cross, His father poured out his wrath on his son for you so that his wrath could be turned away from you. Because right now, apart from Christ, you stand like Achan, deserving hell forever. And because of what Christ did for you on the cross, being expiated and propitiated for you, dying for your sins, that's what it really means. You can have hope and eternal life, forever happiness with him. That's what it means. My friend, if you think your sins can just be overlooked, then you've made up a different kind of God than the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a, oh, all right, like grandpa just overlooks all the mess. It just, oh, come up here and sit on my lap. That's not a holy God. Do you really want him to treat Hitler that way? 
Do you want him to treat the rapist that way? Well, the rapist's sin is as awful as your lies against him. My yelling and anger is as awful as any other sin. And yet Christ offers forgiveness for you. Come to Christ today. Just real quick, this is not the last time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you find that phrase, valley of achor, valley of trouble. It says in Hosea 2, Therefore, behold, I will lure her, bring, talking about his people, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. You and I were in that land of Egypt in slavery. Slaves to our sin. The shackles that we sang about were very real. And Christ went through the valley of Achor for you. And his life on the cross, his death on the cross, became a door of hope for you through that cross and only through that cross can there be hope for you it, the next the rest of the chapter ends I will betroth you to me forever it means to take you to be my wife God's saying this to you I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and then you will know the Lord and I will say to those who were not my people you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Let's pray. God, we just are overwhelmed when we think about our own sinfulness at times. It's so discouraging. It leads us into depression sometimes, deep depression, and yet you offer an answer for it. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that you would help us to not take our sins so lightly, but to live before you, to confess often to you, but to be reminded that you took it all on your son, Jesus Christ, that every single sin, past, present, and future, was expiated and propitiated by your son on the cross for us. We thank you that he rose again and confirmed that your, his death was enough. In Jesus' name, amen.